honestly don't see it. We are in Surah Muhammad, Surah number 47. Sign number four. It is four, right? A'udhu billahi minash shaitan rajeem. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. فَإِذَا لَقِيْتُمُ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا فَضَرْبَ الرِّقَابَ حَتَّى إِذَا أَثْخَنْتُمُوهُمْ فَشُدُّ الْوَثَاقَ فَإِمَّا مَنَّمْ بَعْدُ إِمَّا فِدَاءً حَتَّى تَضَعَ الْحَرْبَ أُزَارَهَا ذَلِكَ وَلَوْ يَشَاءُ اللَّهُ لَنْ تَصَرَ مِنْهُمْ وَلَكِنْ لِيَبْلُوَ بَعْضَكُمْ بِبَعْضَ وَالَّذِينَ قُتِلُوا فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ فَلَنْ يُضِلَّ Here in the discussion of destroying the people of Ad and other communities where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would um, seize them for their disbelief in this world, that was the rule. With all the previous communities that prophets were sent to, they were taken care of in this world. Yeah. Except uh, the people of Isa, who segues into the people of the Prophet. Yeah, and that's why. One of the many reasons why Isa will come back. <clears throat> With this Ummah, the Ummah of the Prophet, وسلم, Allah will not destroy the whole Ummah until the Day of Judgment. And that's the backdrop to the discussions we will have today, inshallah. Um, so here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is. Um, Allowing jihad fi sabirillah bil qital. That you can go out and uh, promote your deen through war, through battle, and through killing, and so on. Which is basically a very normal thing. If you understand expansionism in the past three, four hundred years, maybe more. The Europeans have expanded probably the most. They've colonized almost all the world. And they did it in the name of the Lord, in the name of their religion. And uh, they fought and they killed, they killed and they fought. They created wealth through that process and so on. Nowadays it's called defense. The defense is just another name for jihad, and jihad is another name for defense. At the political level, at the level of the state, how the state manages its domestic security and external security, you need an army. Without an army, you can't do that, so you need that. 
for the sake of peace and security, at least within your own country, within your own frontiers and borders. It's a very natural, normal thing for countries to do, for states to do. It's nothing. It's not alien. You know, the whole concept of jihad is not alien to human civilization. Everybody has it. So we should not apologize for it. Obviously, there are rules for engagement, rules for war, that apparently the United Nations also has in its charter when you can fight and when you can't fight, can you strike preemptively? Apparently, the U.S. says yes. We always strike preemptively. Um, that's nothing except jihad, basically. In jihad, we don't naturally actually strike preemptively. We have a cause and we have a reason, and that is to promote Allah's name and so on. So killing is allowed. That's the key. Killing is not preferred in warfare. It's allowed. So with the punishment of other people before the Prophet them, everybody was punished. Men, women, slave, children, animals. They were all killed. Through the institution of jihad, which there is a sense of that you get in August, Augustine's theory of just war, there, there are some limitations on when you can fight a war and who you should kill and who you should not kill and so on. But with modern-day warfare, it's totally indiscriminate. They, they basically, basically kill the earth with it. All these bombs and missiles, totally dangerous for the environment, creates more problems than human beings can handle. So it's a very vicious and ferocious type of warfare that people nowadays engage in. And the whole nuclear thing is destroying the planet, basically. If you fight nuclear warfare, Allah save us, protect us. That's it. We're all in sick, extinct. So this is almost like godlike intervention, where with the previous communities, Allah destroyed everybody. Likewise, with modern-day warfare, you destroy everybody. And then later on, you claim it's collateral damage, and you get away with it. So there's a lot of that kind of hanky-panky stuff, openly, not even behind the scenes. With the institution of jihad, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala regulates all of this and makes it into a much more kind of regulated uh, practice where you don't kill women, you don't kill children, you don't kill animals, and you don't kill the old people. They're, they're, they're exempt uh, from all of this, except, as I said, the context has changed and those rules they don't apply anymore because they can't apply. When you're bombing somebody, you say, I'm going to spare the wife and the child of the family. No. That's nonsensical. It doesn't apply because it's not capable of having the same ahkam as the ahkam of the sharia and so on. So you have to understand the context. We mustn't be holy than thou. We must be realistic. And we, we must appreciate the context actually exists it's on the ground. This is the truth. Okay. So that to apply the Sharia laws to modern-day warfare is, a, is not happening. Why? Because there's indiscriminate killing. 
indiscriminate destruction. That is not the war that the Sharia allows. We don't allow this kind of war, warfare. And so on. We, we allow, obviously, human beings to develop themselves and create means of defense. That's perfectly fine. As the Quran endorses in Surah Anfal, uh, that you must intimidate uh, others so that they don't come and trample all over you and they don't bully you. And so, so national security is uh, basically one of the main reasons why we would approach the, uh, you know, the defense industry, creating arms and weapons of not mass destruction, but weapons of deterrent more than anything else. So that philosophy and that kind of political discourse is on one side. So when you're reading the ayat, you must appreciate that there's no longer a context in, some, in which some of the ahkam will apply. It simply is not possible on the ground. Right? Yeah. But there's some ethical rules that the Quran lays down here uh, in this surah that may be still applied, and they can be applied, inshallah. Okay. So thus, oh, this is the reason why these people who disbelieve uh, know this, that when you meet those who disbelieve, uh, so whenever you're fighting the non-believer in order to promote Allah's word and in order to give peace and security to others, yeah, then you must strike their necks with a lethal blow if you want to. Nowadays, there's a bullet in the head. You're not going to strike the neck. No. So if you say this is literal, then that's not possible. If you say it's interpreted and uh, kind of more well, then you say, okay, it means just to kill people uh, the way you kill people, and so on. No? Until the time that you have totally subjugated them, Meaning the fighters, uh, the enemy, you subjugate them and you control them, and it becomes the, the, the war and the battle becomes thick with blood, as you will see. Fashud uh, al-wathaq, that the, then you can then tie fast their bonds, capture them, make them into POWs, and so on. So this is allowed, that you can capture soldiers and you can make them into a POW, uh, as you know, through the Geneva Convention. Also, these are almost the same rules, if not uh, very similar, at least. Afterwards, about the treatment of POWs, okay, then it can be either that you have a gracious offer and you... Uh, free them, or there's a ransom. Okay. So both now types of engagement are allowed according to Islamic law. Okay. So you can offer them, you know, release them, give them asylum, or you can, you know, make sure there's some money coming towards you. The money could be anything. It could be any kind of... Monetary exchange could be any other type of exchange, ransom, basically. 
So here it seems that uh, that uh, the point is we should minimize the killing, and once the enemy is subdued, then we should not kill indiscriminately. We don't do that, and there's many reasons for that. Hatta tadal harb until the battle and the war lays down its own burdens and so on. So the war has burdens. It has. Uh, a lot of money, uh, resources, human resources, monetary resources, other types of resources you need in order to train people how to fight and in order to actually engage in a battle. Uh, a lot of things need to come together. Planning, strategizing, having a war college, having cadets uh, being trained at West Point, and uh, you need the military schools and you need all of that orientation, you need coordination, you need to make sure the platoons are there and the ranks are there, officers are there, and then on top the government is there, war is this way and this way. So you have that everything. Ozaraha, it's burdens. It's a huge burden on the state to fight a battle. It's not easy, it's not just that you get onto your horse or your camel and you shoot arrows and you fight with a sword. That's gone. Okay, so you have to remove that from our minds when we're talking about this. Bring the context into the picture. Be realistic about these issues. Don't be that theoretical and so on. But this does apply. The POWs, that you can release them or you can now take ransom for them and get something out of from that, which also happens. And so you're not allowed to torture them. Yeah, you're not allowed to interrogate them through violent means. Uh, it's either one or the other. Don't keep them in suspense. Right? So we're not allowed to keep human beings in suspense in any way, form, if especially if they're POWs. So when the war lays down its burdens, then the fight will now stop and finish. That's the conclusion of uh, our understanding of how we should treat the POWs. There's a third option. The third option is to enslave them, which we will talk about also. Hmm? Um, this is because, or this is how thus, whichever way you like to translate, ذلك. Had Allah wanted, he could have helped them. He could have sought revenge from them. The translation is execute them. That he could have given you authority over them this way. But no, we won't want you to kill them indiscriminately. We are testing you with each other. So this whole process is a test. So just as life and death is a test, and trials in life are tests, money is a test, children and family are their tests, likewise this war and warfare is also a test. It's a bala, it's ibtila, so you should look at it from this kind of a philosophical angle that what is now the reason for all of this, there's nothing except fighting and killing either in battle, outside of battle, there's nothing but violence on the streets of the USA, whether for a reason or for no reason, there's a lot of killing out there. 
So you have to bring that into the equation also. The, the question is violence. The question is not just warfare, the question is violence in general. What's the solution to violence? Not just in, in jihad or warfare. If American, America can work out the solution to the violence in the USA, they'll be a much better country than what they are. Uh, what the heck, you know, for 40 years, 50 years, we have violence on the south side of Chicago, which people no longer want to solve. Why have you allowed that? If it's about killing, then why are you allowing this? You know, I mean, it has to be equal, right? The, 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 the philosophy has to be consistent. Indiscriminate violence is violence. What's the result? People killed. People die. And in warfare and battle, what happens? People die. So if the root issue is violence, then you're no more guilty than anyone else on the planet of violence. Look at all the violence. Campuses, people shooting each other. Every day this story. A new story almost every day, every week. There's violence here in the country that talks about human rights. So can you solve... Now, domestic abuse, can you solve the issue of rape in this country? Can you solve the issue of drunk driving? Can you, drink, can you solve the issue of homicide, infanticide, any kind of side by this killing? So that's a domestic issue, no doubt, and this is a foreign affairs issue, but it's the same thing. So Islam wants peace among security for everybody, whether they're fighting in a battle or not fighting. That's the comprehensive understanding of how uh, the Islamic government works or should work, and so on. So they should have aman, security, where it is. Are you safe to walk in some of the streets of urban America? Are you going to be afraid to walk in the streets, whether in daylight or at nighttime? Do you have a level of security where I will not be harassed, I will not be killed? I would not be marred, you know, robbed or mugged or anything else. So here we see, it's basically we're testing each other, you with each other. So the test is restraining from violence. And that's the test. Control yourselves, control your anger, control your ego, become better human beings, be more caring and more generous to each other. And so on. So, yeah. And the worst kind of violence is that which you portray in your battles with all these weapons of mass destruction. The inhumane. Not only for the victims, but also for the ones who are engaged in warfare. They come out with, what is the thing they call it? PTSD? Yeah. Another form of violence. You've made them more violent than they were. You understand? They messed up. You can't, they can't do anything in society. You have the veterans kind of industry and nobody cares what, what happens to them. They're not taken care of and so on. So I think that you have to have the whole conversation, the big picture, the comprehensive picture, so that you understand what Allah is saying, at least a little bit. وَلَكِنْ لِيَبْلُوَ بَعْضَكُمْ بِبَعْضٍ وَلَوْ شَاءَ اللَّهُ لَنْتَصَرَ مِنْهُمْ 
If Allah wanted, he could have taken revenge and he could have said to you that he can kill them all. He doesn't do that. So we have rules and regulations here, which, as I said, they don't apply that much anymore. Some of these do apply, and they should apply. So Allah wanted, he could have just spread Islam through his hidayah, through his nur. But that's not how the rule of this time and space works. The rule of time and space is very different from the rule of Allah's now um, invincible powers and abilities. So Allah has the power. He's omnipotent. He can do anything at will. But when his will comes down into space and time, it takes on another form, it takes on another color, it takes on different dimensions, then it's restricted. And then because time and space is restrictive, then you will have to abide by the rules. And that is that if someone is not behaving, then you have to discipline that person and find a way to correct the behavior of that person even though Allah can immediately, automatically, instantaneously reform the person. But this is the world. In this world, there's a process, there's a system, because of the nature of this world. So in this world, you have to send them to prison. They you call prisons what? Correctional facilities. Isn't that the word they use? Correctional facilities. Where anything but correction happens, that's a different issue. But at least they got the term right. <laughs> it's a correctional institution. That the idea is to reform the people who need reformation. So that's one basic fundamental philosophy of the, the law of punishment, the punitive laws, correctional laws, and all of that. So that you are going to restrain human beings and take away their civil liberties. That doesn't jive with your philosophy of the USA in the pursuit of happiness and liberty and whatnot. Whatever it is. Where's the liberty of a prisoner? Why are you restricting the prisoner? Because he's a danger to society. We are testing each other, you with each other. So one group who are not criminals they will be discharged with the responsibility of correcting the criminals, either through some punitive measure or some corrective measure. That's the test. You can't leave society to become anarchist and you can do whatever the heck you want. You can't rob people, you can't steal, you can't harm people, you can't kill people. So that is in the vein of making sure that the violence is mitigated. And there's psychological trauma that people unfortunately suffer through. That's another type of violence that people abuse this way and that way. And there's violence against yourself through drugs and alcohol that you're committing violence against you. So that has to be curbed and mitigated and corrected and all of that. So if Allah wanted, Allah could just destroy every sinner in the world. He can destroy every criminal in the world. He could reform every non-Muslim in the world. But uh, that doesn't happen because of time and space. You're in a different realm. You're in a different dimension. And this dimension requires that things are done through a gradual process and not instantaneously. 
Okay? You can't put a criminal microwave and bring him out and now you reform. It doesn't happen that way. Law and order works only because you are mukallaf, you are legally responsible, and you have to show and demonstrate you're responsible. If you don't demonstrate your responsibility legally, then you'll be imprisoned or you'll be checked and you'll be incarcerated or whatever your law allows you to do. So in that sense, you are going to make sure there is peace and aman and security domestically first. If you fail in that, then you're not the um, you know, most wonderful thing that happened to human beings. You're not. That's a lie. So that's number one. Number two, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Rasul and uh, Islam sees people who don't believe in Allah and the Rasul also as people who need reformation. Hmm? Yeah. So those people who believe in democracy, their basic agenda, ostensibly at least on paper, is what? We want to further the interests of democracy in every country you go into. Hmm. Whether it's right or wrong is a statement. So what's wrong with changing the word democracy to say we want now Allah's will? Or say that we want Islamic rule, which only promotes basically justice and security. I used to see one of the reasons why only the prisoners of war are mentioned here is to bring out that ihsan of Islam, that at the time when you're killing people, if you fail to kill them, then you don't need to kill them. We're not warmongers, we're not bloodthirsty, that we're going to just kill people indiscriminately because we're at war. Very different from what happens with many other civilizations and campaigns and the colonizers, uh, so where these colonizers are guilty of genocide after genocide after genocide. Indiscriminate killing, indiscriminate looting, indiscriminate, uh, what do you call it, suffering impose on other human beings, where Islam has a standard that even at this level of fighting and warfare, we actually care for human beings. And the proof's in the pudding, mashallah. Obviously, human beings are human beings, and human beings who are kings and rulers, they're not infallible, they have mistakes and faults, and some of them did commit mistakes and and did what they did. But on the whole, the Islamic civilization, when it was an empire, if you want to call it an empire, they they allowed people to live. Not only live, they allowed people to thrive. In their communities, they were treated with a lot more dignity than their own people treated them with. Uh, As I said, the proofs in the pudding, the history books will tell you all of this. But this is how Allah said, in this world, we are confined to the rules of this world and we will only do what human beings do. So if the Prophet wants to convert everybody in the world, Allah is going to help him only through his effort. Not through divine intervention. Divine intervention occurs sometimes, occasionally. But the rule is, sai. The rule is effort, that you must make the effort. You have to go door-to-door to people in Makkah and tell them that I need to save you and deliver you from the fire of hell. You need to go everywhere in uh, Medina. You need to do this and that. You have to negotiate. You have to talk. 
and then sometimes you have to fight and you have to go into warfare so that the aggression of the enemy doesn't come to you and you're not trampled by the enemy and you're seen as somebody who is dignified, has self-respect and honorable and all of that. But if Allah wanted, he could have just converted these people instantaneously. Yeah, so that's Allah's will, which is a cosmological issue, the queen issue. And you have Sharia, now, which is the issue in this world. So the, the world will follow the Sharia. So through the Sharia, you may do this at the at the last resort, not at the first resort. Right? The books of Sirah will tell you when the Prophet did go into battle and he didn't. And so, on. so most of the battles were of a defensive nature. Some weren't. We're not going to apologize for that either. If you allow expansionism for the past 400 years for everyone who's European, then why can't you allow expansionism for who was non-European? It's the same thing. The standards have to be consistent and so on. But we don't fight for the sake of killing, which is the point. We fight for the sake of establishing peace, security, aman, basically to all types of people. For those who are killed in the path of Allah, this fi sabil khital here. This fi sabil is not fi sabil talabil ilm, which is also fi sabil. When you go into pursuit of knowledge, you're in fi sabil. But that's not what's meant here. What's meant here is jihad bil safe, jihad bil khital, and so on. So those who are martyred would be the right word. In the path of Allah, Allah will not uh, destroy and cause their actions to be wasted. One obviously is that in the secular sense, in the mundane sense, they've died so they failed because they died. The point in battle is not to die but to survive. If you survive, then in mundane terms, you have succeeded because you didn't die in a place and a time when invariably you will die. Okay. Right. So the law says, no, there's another component here, and that's called the akhirah. So in terms of the qabr, uh, they don't die, they're alive. So the Quran says the martyrs who die fi sabillah, they're not dead. They're alive. So the Qur'an gives them that honor of saying that they have now eternal life, even though they experience death at that moment. Allah says, rather they are alive. So they're not dead. We can't call them dead. They're alive. And those people who have been fortunate enough to see some of the bodies of the shuhada, they witness that they're fresh. They, they don't decompose, a sign of life. Yeah. So that's there. So now, one is that you measure uh, success and failure in terms of the mundane world, or perhaps better, in terms of the secular world. And so, but even in the secular world, they don't die because they're treated as heroes. Posthumously, they're treated as heroes. You give them a medal, even though they die. <laughs> you send them back with a flag. So they're not dead yet. They're alive in the memories of people. They're seen as heroes. So that's another form of life. Allah gives them in this world. But the Quran talks about a life in the barzakh, which is much better. 
and higher level of life, as you know. Then on the Day of Judgment, they go into Jannah without Hisab. Now they taste eternal bliss, where the success there is the point. The point is to uh, somehow make your way into Jannah, which will come up in the next ayah. Yeah, so what's, what's the reason you do this? The reason you do this is to get into Jannah. Right. The purpose of every action in Islam is to facilitate your entry into Jannah. Right. So there's short term and there's a long term. The long term goal must override the short term goal. So that's why the Prophet has warned people that anyone who fights for plunder and booty, he is not fi sabillah. He won't go into Jannah. You understand? So the, the, the macro must rule the micro. That's the way you always think about Islam. The long-term objective must guide the short-term objective, even though you'll be listed as a soldier or warrior or whatever. But Allah may not give you Jannah because of your niyyah or because you did something else which was dhulm in the process, injustice, in the path of Allah also, and likewise, khiyana, obviously a big thing with looting and plunder, that you've been dishonest and you embezzle, whether you're the ruler or the, you know, the, the general or the soldier. There can be no embezzlement. So you have to maintain your ethics and laws uh, if you want to enter Jannah. So everything should lead to you entering Jannah, not the other Iran. So now we don't have simply a secular reason for fighting, whereas expansionism is all secular, that we want territorial advantage. That's a short-term goal for Muslims. The long-term goal, yeah, you have to enter Jannah, basically. So that's why you follow the Sunnah. In everything you do, that's in the midst. Allah will not let their actions go to waste. Somehow, if they survive, they will be good. They'll get some uh, enjoyment and pleasure in this dunya. And if they are martyred and they're shaheed, they'll have everlasting bliss. So that's how. You must see this play out. One of the critics, uh, basically some Orientalists, have a problem with the four khulafa, that from the four khulafa, three of your khulafa, were assassinated. That shows that the Islamic system failed. You couldn't keep your leaders alive. You had internal problems. It sounds like an okay kind of comment. But in terms of the Akhir, it's ridiculous. They don't die, you fool. Allah kept them alive. Omar is alive. Abu is alive Omar's alive, he's a shaheed. Uthman is alive, he's a shaheed. Ali is alive, he's a shaheed. They didn't die. You only look at it from your secular point of view. We're looking at it from the Islamic point of view. From the Islamic point of view, Allah kept the khulafa alive by giving them shahada. That's a success for us. Maybe not for you. For us, they're much more than heroes. Okay. They're the khulafa of Rasulullah and they are shuhada also at the same time. So they have merit upon merit over merit. And that's how it says. It's not that the Islamic system doesn't work. 
It's just that Allah wanted to raise their ranks in Jannah, so he gave them shahada, martyrdom. This is Allah's planning, it's not our planning. So that's how we must understand. The Khulafa, when they were shaheed, they did not lose. They didn't fail. Allah made it happen. Allah did what? Allah made it happen. That's why the words here, is passive, is majhul. They are killed. Where they're not actually the doers of their own killing. So that's how you must understand the nuances in how to see the world through the eyes of Islam, which projects itself and ends in Jannah, and through the eyes of secular historians. You don't have a case against us. We believe in eternal life. So we believe the Khulafa in Jannah, mashallah, alhamdulillah. That for us is the only success we care for. Yeah, so it's not just simply a mundane effort that the Khilafah brings. The Khilafah brings, as it's an extension of Nabuwa, it brings about the idea in the Aqidah that eventually we must end up in Jannah. And that's what happened, alhamdulillah, through Allah's fadl and his destiny. Yeah. Allah will guide them and Allah will manage their affairs, improve their affairs and improve everything that's necessary for them to be successful in both worlds. So there are two benefits in following the prescription of Allah when it comes to human beings. One is hidayah, guidance, not dhalala, not error, or be misguided. Guidance in the sense your policies will be right, you'll be guided in your policies, you'll be guided in the way you manage your defense, You'll be guided in the way you control the security and offer security to your citizens. You'll be guided in the way of defending your territory. You'll be guided in the way of fighting if fighting is necessary. That's guidance. Sayyidim. The other guidance is kind of micro guidance in Salat, Salam, Zakat, Hajj. That's at this point. In this context, that's micro. In the larger context of running a state, it's only at the state level that you can actually uh, engage in jihad. Individuals cannot engage in jihad. We don't allow vigilantism. The, the state, the khalifa or the amir, must announce jihad. Groups of people can't do that. So it is a state kind of sponsored. So that is country to country or community to community. You have to announce it. If you don't announce to the other party, then that's not jihad. Maybe guerrilla warfare, but it's not jihad. Right? Yeah. So that's how this is not about the Khilafah. This is about the state. This is about the macro of the Muslim community and Muslim society. So you'll be guided. Allah, if you do this, Sayyidim, Allah will guide you as to what kind of policies and what types of negotiations, how diplomatic you can be, how diplomatic you can't be. And that's how Muslims are successful. Because Allah guided them in warfare. There's guidance in warfare. So there's the prescription. There's guidance in ibadat, which every Muslim has, alhamdulillah. But guidance in warfare is now perhaps uh, exclusive to the people who rule, govern, and manage and administrate uh, at the state level. 
and their affairs will be mended and they will be taken care of psychologically, intellectually, uh, socially, and also at the government level, their affairs will be very correct, inshallah. And then the final conclusion, as I just mentioned, Allah will then allow them to enter into Jannah, which is the purpose of Islam. The purpose of Islam is not simply secular management and success uh, infrastructure, but more than that, it is to make sure that Muslims as a community enter Jannah. All of them, as a community, as an ummah. Allah will allow them to enter Jannah, a place where there's no warfare, there's no backbiting, there's no stealing, there's no ill will, uh, there's no vile, vicious kind of action, and there's nothing that is against the rules of uh, civil society behavior. Uh, there's no harm, there's no stress, there's no distress. Uh, so you, what you do, you, you bear all the stress here so that you don't have stress there. The stress at the individual level, communal level, state level, and so on. So Allah will then allow you all of you, to, all of them, to enter Jannah with his fadl and with his rahmah, and so on. Arrafaha lahum, very intriguing part of the ayah. Uh, yeah. A jannah that he has made known to them. Is, uh, Allah has made jannah familiar to the believers. These are different levels. Arrafaha lahum, ta'rif, define. Um, when the, one of the punishments in the grave and also on the Day of Judgment, and Jahannam also is the, 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 what we call a cultural shock. You don't know where you are, whether, what, what the heck is happening. You've never seen this kind of punishment and torment. So just the cultural shock of being in a different dimension and uh, you know, suffering, that in itself is a punishment. So one of the greatest punishments is that you are not you're not warned. You're not prepared for what's coming. And one of the greatest forms of enjoyment and displeasure is that you're already familiar with what's going to happen. So Allah is saying, I've already made Jannah familiar to these people who die and fight and they do work for Allah and the Rasul. So, so the developing familiarity requires that you have knowledge. You can only be familiar if you have knowledge. And the knowledge gives you familiarity, uns. They call it uh, uns. Which is one of the reasons of ta'rif. You become familiar with the word, with the definition, so that your mind doesn't reject it and you're not alienated from the concept. Mm-hmm. The Arabs say that people are enemies uh, against anything they don't know. They, usually, if you don't know something, you reject it instantaneously. It is almost natural. I don't know this, so I'm rejecting it. But with Jannah, Allah says, I've made Jannah familiar to these people because they think about Jannah. They know what Jannah is. They read the ayat of the Quran that talks about Jannah and Jahannam. They read the hadith that talk about Jannah and Jahannam. They've heard from the Prophet what this is. So now, one of the most important exercises for all Muslims is to actually read and understand all the ayat of Jannah and Jahannam. Because that's 
Hopefully you're going to end up in Jannah. Hopefully not the other place. <laughs> right? Yeah. So that's how Allah is saying that, uh, what do you call it? Utubihi um, mutashabiha. Surah Baqarah. That they will be given fruits that will resemble fruits of the world. See, if you have an apple in uh, Jannah, so oh, I know this apple. At least the concept is familiar to me. If you have a banana, oh, I know banana. The concept is familiar. Okay, so developing a pre-familiarity with your destination is unique to prophets. I'm going to make you familiar. I have to make you familiar with death so that psychologically you're prepared. You're not in a cultural shock when death comes upon you. I'm going to make you familiar with the grave. I'm going to make you familiar with the mahshar. I'm going to make you familiar with Jahannam and Jannah. So the, the, the knowledge gives you familiarity of the realities that are yet to come. That in itself is a ni'mah. That in itself is a rahmah. So Muslims cannot afford not to study the Qur'an in terms of its comprehensiveness, in terms of the various phases and stages of life until Jannah. And even after Jannah, when you're in Jannah, the Prophet ﷺ mentions so many different forms of pleasures and in Ahmad. And now you are familiar with the type of life you'll have. Right? Yeah. So this is how the comprehensive understanding of Islam is necessary. You can't just say, I'm going to focus on fiqh. I'm going to focus on aqidah. Maybe you should focus on Jannah. And the early fuqaha always had Jannah in mind when they applied rules of fiqh also which is a different subject altogether. Anyway, it's there. One of the translations of uh, Abdullah ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhu, is that, He translates it with arrafa, as That means he's given them a scent of Jannah. He's given them a whiff of Jannah. It's a very unique translation. It's ingenious. That now you are going to smell the scent of Jannah here, which is what some of the Sahaba actually experienced. While they were going into battles, I smell paradise. So he was Shaheed. <laughs> the unique karama of the Sahaba. They smell Jannah here. Very unique. Amazing. So Ibn Abbas's understanding is very unique. He, he is the Mufassir of the Ummah. He says, Arrafaha, you can translate as Tayyibaha meaning that Allah will give them a scent of Jannah. You know, it comes into you, it comes into your ruh, it comes into your mind, your internet. And once you start smelling that and tasting that, then you want to be there. Because now you have experienced a little bit. Allah gives them a whiff of Jannah. Right? Yes. And before you get into the perfume store, you start smelling the smell. And you want to go in there now. As you enter, so this is now also creating this familiarity. It means the same thing. You're causing, you're creating the familiarity in such a way that you become manus, that you become so acquainted and easy. Uh, you develop an affinity with jannah. So that is huge in terms of motivation. Yeah? And if that happens, then the amal become easier. Once you have uns with Allah, the Rasul, and Islam, and Jannah, then any action is now easy for you to do once you're acquainted um, and, you, and, you, uh, and you become familiar with the idea 
it kind of sits well with you. Then you're okay, it's a psychological state. Anyway, these are some of the rules, ahkam, of um, you know, Islam. There's one more discussion we haven't done today. And that's the issue of imprisonment, which is, as you know, we're not supposed to torture prisoners. We're supposed to feed them, treat them kindly with respect. And one of the benefits of this is that they eventually become Muslim. And the other issue is the issue of slavery. Why does Islam allow prisoners of war to become slaves? Which may be next week, inshallah. We will highlight. Jazakumullah khair. Subhanallah wa hamdi. Subhanakallah wa hamdi. Alhamdulillah.